If you have your copy of Scripture, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Timothy. We are deviating this morning from our sermon series in Ephesians. It is not often our practice to jump around. We like to stay in one uh, book of the Bible at a time, and yet this morning as we are celebrating Reformation Sunday, we are looking in a special way at 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want us to focus in specific on verse 16 down to chapter 4, verse 5, but for sake of context, we're going to begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, and we're going to read down to verse 5 this morning, 2 Timothy three thirteen to 4, verse 5. As you're turning there, and I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open this morning so that you can be reading along with me, I would just point out that if you want to find in God's Word the section of God's Word that treats the nature of God's Word, what it is, what Scripture is, and why it's so important, and how God wants it propagated, this is the passage to which you come. Um, the Apostle Paul is at the end of his life. This is arguably his last letter that he wrote of the 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament. And Tradition has it that he is going to be martyred very soon after he wrote this letter. He knows that his time is coming. He, he speaks of his death in this about being poured out as an offering. Um, he knows that he has run his course well. And he also knows, and this is so very important, he also knows that there are not going to be apostles when the last apostle has ceased to be used by God and the foundation of Scripture is accomplished. And so what he is writing to Timothy, as he is doing to Titus, is essentially giving them everything that they are going to need and every subsequent generation of ministers of the gospel are going to need once there's not an apostle to go to, to ask questions, because it would have been very natural for, for Timothy and other ministers to go to the apostles and to ask them for advice and counsel. And so this letter carries enormous weight in the purpose that it serves in giving us everything that is necessary for pastoral ministry once the apostolic foundation is laid and the apostles have finished the work that Christ has done through them. And so with that in mind, I want us to read... 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 4, verse 5. Now Paul, writing his young protege, says, While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort 
with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. When we, when we think of the Reformation that happened now, really was set in motion 505 years ago today, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the castle church door there in Wittenberg, Germany. When we think of the Reformation, we oftentimes think of things like the rediscovery of the heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone, because that was so much a part of the Reformation. We may also think of the Reformation as a reclamation of right worship. Um, how are we to worship God? What is to be in our worship? What is pleasing to God? Why would we do what we do in worship? And the Reformation was certainly a reclamation of a God-honoring form of worship, when we think of the Reformation, we may think of the impact that it had on society, on things like vocation, understanding that all vocations were right and good, that, that um, the clergy was not significantly better than every other vocation, which is what the Roman Catholic Church had really presented for so many years across the nations. And it was, a, it was an elevation the Reformation was an elevation of the doctrine of vocation. And when we think of the Reformation, we may think of the great impact it had in producing free societies and bringing about things like capitalism, because that was the source from which those benefits that we still enjoy today flowed. And all of those things are, are right and good, but one of the things that we oftentimes don't think about enough when we think about the Reformation is that the Reformation was a reclaiming of the preaching of God's Word, the pure and right preaching of God's Word. In fact, I would argue that there would have been no Reformation had there not been the reclaiming of the right preaching of God's Word. Because for so long, the Word of God had been kept from the people of God. It had been sequestered in Latin translations of the Bible. The Word was not being preached purely. Expositional preaching was not happening. The Gospel was not being held forth. And all kinds of inventions, human inventions, were being pressed on the consciences of men so that when God raised up, Men like Martin Bucer, one of the first things that Martin Bucer did was reclaim expositional preaching. He had looked back at the very early examples, the, the example of Chrysostom in the early church, how he preached book by book, text by text. We still have Chrysostom's sermons today, and Bucer understood that if Reformation was going to happen, it would happen through the vehicle of preaching God's Word. He began to preach through the book of Matthew, and then other reformers took a cue from him, and they all began preaching expositional sermons until at the zenith of the Reformation in Geneva, God had raised up John Calvin, and John Calvin's ministry was a ministry of the preaching of the Word of God. Um, Calvin had preached just about every book in the Old Testament, many in the New Testament, 
And thankfully, he had hired a uh, transcriptionist by the name of Denis Ragunier, who transcribed many of his sermons, many of which we have still today in English translations, by God's grace. And, and I may have told you this at some point, it was John Knox sitting under Calvin's preaching of Ephesians. And, and when he died, he had a, a copy of Calvin's sermons on Ephesians by his deathbed, marking how enormously impactful that was. He would carry that Reformation back to Scotland because he was so impacted by Calvin's pulpit ministry. Now, let me say this this morning, not everyone loved Calvin's ministry. In fact, Calvin will be driven out of Geneva in 1538. The people will start to name their dogs after him. They hated John Calvin, which is almost always what happens with faithful ministers of the gospel. The people get tired and start to hate them, and then realized what they had lost and begged him to come back. And so he stopped preaching on Easter, Easter Day, 1538. He had no desire to go back to Geneva. It was Pharrell who had brought him there who begged him to come back. Calvin reluctantly comes back, and between 18, I'm sorry, 1538 and September of 1541. He had not been in Geneva. He stepped back in September of 1541, and he went on to the next verse from where he had left off as if he had not missed a beat. That's amazing. John Calvin picked up right where he left off as if he had been there the whole time preaching God's word. Um, When Calvin ended his last exposition of scripture in January 1564, he said, I know that the matter has not been treated as well as they deserve. He says, my brethren, to whom God has given his grace, my prayer is that he will fill up my shortage for which I ask. Isn't that awesome? He felt like his task was never complete. There was always more to teach. There was always more he could have said, and he could have said it better. I heard Sinclair Ferguson say in a lecture once, he said, you know, it's probably true that most People wish their minister would say less, would stop talking, but the reality is there's always more for him to say. And most Christians have never heard enough preaching in their life. And if we want to see Reformation again, this is the vehicle by which it's going to happen. Not by gimmicks and entertainment, not by plans and programs, but by the pure preaching of God's word. Now, I've directed you this morning to uh, 2 Timothy 3, and, and as I've noted, this is one of the great passages. This is This is the locus classicus. This is the classical text. If we want to understand the central foundational place that Scripture has in the life of the church, this is where we come. And as I've said, Paul is instructing Timothy, and he is essentially saying to Timothy, listen, the time is coming when you will not have me, and I'm going to give you and every subsequent generation of ministers everything that you need in the previous letter, in this letter, and in Titus. We call those the pastoral epistles. And it's very interesting that if this is indeed Paul's last letter, and it is the last of the pastoral letters, and it is the final thing that Paul is going to say as he passes the baton on to Timothy, then it ought to be self-evident to us that the final thing he says in this final letter carries the most gravity. It has... It is the the center of gravity for what ought to be central in the church. 
And so here in this final section and in this final chapter, Paul is going to talk about the primacy of the preaching of God's word. Now, he's going to do two things I want us to focus on here this morning. First, he's going to tell us about the nature of Scripture, and then he's going to tell us about the means of the propagation of Scripture, the nature of Scripture, and then the means of propagating Scripture. Well, notice verse 13. Paul is going to have these statements where he is going to talk about what is the greatest threat to the continuance and the health of the Christian church. And in almost every case, the great threat, the really great threat, is not the persecution that comes from without. It's the false teaching and the error that circulates within. It's very interesting as you look at uh, Satan's tactics in, in the New Testament. They go from things like demon possession during the earthly ministry of Christ to what Paul will call doctrines of demons in the later letters, as if Satan has has shifted his tactics. And notice what Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 3. Notice this. He says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And notice over in chapter 4. Notice verse 3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, I want to say this this morning. Don't think that you are so sophisticated in the 21st century, in all that you think you've learned and known, as to think that we cannot fall into the the danger of being deceived by false teaching. That, That would be a naivete you want to avoid with everything in you. Every one of us, if we are not holding fast to the scriptures or in danger of being moved away from the scriptures, every single man, woman, boy, and girl in this church. There's a lot of conversation today about why people are deconstructing, why children aren't still in the church, and maybe if we had this and this, there's one simple answer, because people stop holding fast to the truth of God's word, and they allow themselves to be led into myths, into falsehood, into error, and they do it volitionally because Paul says they want to do it. Paul actually says here that, um, notice back in chapter 3, verse 1, understand this, that in the last days, and he's talking about right then, he's not talking about some future event. The last days, Christ has come. He's brought the last days with him. In the last days will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Does this sound familiar, by the way? This is everything in our culture, and it was everything in his ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, if that's the condition of men and women in this fallen world, and it is, then you can understand why they want to heap up teachers that are going to tell them what they want to hear rather than listening to the very word of God rightly proclaimed. So notice that as Paul has set out that as the backdrop, evil people will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Notice what he says, verse 14 to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul knows Timothy's character. He knows that Timothy is a man of the word. He knows that Timothy is a man who loves truth. He knows that Timothy has been raised to know and to love the truth. By the way, I want to say this as an aside this morning. The instrumentality of parents and grandparents who teach their children and grandchildren the word of God can never be estimated as to its value and worth. You can never overestimate. I'm sorry, you can never overestimate the value of the influence of godly grandparents and parents. And Paul tells Timothy, look, you have known these things. You have believed them from childhood. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings told us where his mother and his grandmother had taught him. And yet Paul feels like Timothy needs to be strengthened again in knowing what Scripture is, knowing the nature of God's Word. And so notice he says in verse 16, that famous well-known verse, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, I want us to consider here as we look at the nature of Scripture some of the things that Paul is including in this. Paul is essentially telling us wherever Scripture is rightly divided, God himself is addressing us. Wherever Scripture is rightly divided, God himself is addressing us. Why do people hate Scripture so much? Because they know. They know that it's God's word. They know that it's convicting. They know to some extent that it troubles their consciences, that it leaves them feeling unrest. Um, if scripture wasn't God's word, then more unbelievers in the world would, would praise it, celebrate it, tolerate it, promote it. Um, and yet, Paul knows that wherever God's word is rightly proclaimed, God is addressing men and women. And he's doing so by nature of Scripture. Notice that he uses two different phrases. Back in verse 15, he tells Timothy, you were acquainted with the sacred writings. We're going to talk about what that is in a minute. And then he says here in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, Paul clearly has in mind the Old Testament because the New Testament has not yet been fulfilled. Paul himself is aware that he was appointed by God and that the Holy Spirit was superintending him writing scripture because when Paul writes the Thessalonians, he says, I praise you that when you receive the word that we gave you, you did not receive it as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the very word of God, which also works effectually in you. Um, Peter also knew that Paul was writing scripture because Peter puts Paul on par with all the other inspired scripture that is written. And yet Paul has in here the Old Testament. Now that's interesting because many of us devalue the Old Testament and we overvalue the New Testament because the New Testament's clearer. And yet Paul is telling Timothy, the things that make one wise unto salvation by faith in Christ, the things that will guide you to glory, the things that will, will land you in eternal life with Christ, are all set out in the Old Testament. Um, you know, John Calvin preached almost more from the Old Testament than he did from the New, which is quite a testimony. 
to him understanding this. Now, I want to say this this morning. Paul is not making this up. This is not an invention of Paul. In fact, you'll remember when Jesus was risen, and in that, that 40-day period where he appeared recurrently to different groups of disciples, remember on the road to Emmaus, when he is there walking with the two on the road to Emmaus, maybe a husband and a wife, he's walking with them. And, and he's conversing with them, and they don't know that it's him. This is the risen Christ. He is veiled from them. And, and Luke tells us that he was teaching them from all the scriptures all the things about himself. He was teaching them from all the scriptures all the things about himself. And then he appears to the disciples, and Luke tells us in the same chapter, in Luke 24, he says that he made known to them from the law the Psalms, and the prophets, all the things about himself. Now, that's the threefold division of the Old Testament. And what, what Luke is pressing on us is that all of the Old Testament is all centered on Christ. It's all organically related to him. It's all there so that he would be set forth in a variety of ways, types and shadows, ordinances, prophecies, poetry, wisdom, law, prophetic utterances, all of it is about Christ. And it's all there for the instruction and the salvation of the people of God. And that means we ought to have the greatest confidence when we read the Old Testament that we are there to find Christ, to understand how this is related to him, to understand how this is to build me up in him. Now, Paul doesn't go into all of those details, he simply says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now, this is what theologians have called the theopneustos principle. Theopneustos is the word in the Greek, and it is God-breathed, very simply. It is a very rare Greek word in its usage, and is the only time it ends up in the New Testament. It's called a hapex legomena. It's the only use of this word in the New Testament, and it carries with it the entire doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that Scripture is inspired by God. Now, we, we, sort, of, we sort of are at a, a loss to understand the weight of this when we hear the word inspiration, because... We tend to think, hey, I really like that song. It really inspires me. I really like that person. They really inspire me. That's not, that's not the theonoustos principle Paul is talking about. In fact, if we, could, if we could redeem an English word and put it right here in the place of inspired, it would be the word expired. God is, has breathed out Scripture. He hasn't breathed inspiration into Scripture. He has breathed out the Scripture. The scripture doesn't become God's word. It is God's word. It is the very breath word of God. Um, and it, it comes to us in a variety of ways. The writer of Hebrews tells us in the first verse of the first chapter, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. He he inspired all of his words, sometimes through dreams, sometimes through visions, sometimes through other forms of revelation by which God worked in a variety of human authors to give us a perfect revelation of God. 
Uh, theologians call that the plenary doctrine of Scripture. In all of its fullness, all of the Scripture has been breathed out by God. Now, why, why even labor this point? Because if we try to go on and talk about anything else related from Scripture, if we go on to talk about anything else and we don't believe that, we are in a very dangerous place. Because that is the very anchor of everything else that flows from this. Um, the late John Murray, I love this. I listened to a sermon by him as a young Christian, and, and he said, he said if, if you knew that God was going to speak in a field today and, and you told everybody God at 5 o'clock is going to speak audibly, you'd have half of creation going out to that field trying to hear God, and yet every time Scripture is read, God is speaking. God is speaking every time Scripture is read, God is speaking. Every time God's Word is rightly divided, God himself is addressing us. It is more clear than the audible voices we make because the writer of Hebrews tells us that the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces into the very division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Think about that. The living God in whom we live and move and have our being speaks into the very depths of our souls, into, into places in us that we could never even explain fully. And it, it lays bare all things. It lays everything bare, all of our thoughts, all of our words. On Judgment Day, I had a friend that used to say to me, it's going to be like a sacrificial lamb cut open and everything's going to be exposed. And the Word does that. But the Word does that so that it might make us wise unto salvation. Notice that that. Paul is emphasizing back at the end of 15 that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is the central focus of God's word, is to make you wise unto salvation by faith in Christ. Now, Paul is saying more than just Scripture is inspired. He's saying it's authoritative. Notice this. All Scripture is breathed out by God, verse 16, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There is an authority to God's Word. Um, you know, I have no intrinsic authority as a pastor. The only authority I have in the office that God has placed me is God's Word. That is the, the sole authority. As much as I want to tell you, you cannot like Alabama football. Shame on you if you do. I have no authority to bind your consciences. As much as I want to walk up to that precipice, I can't do that. I can only tell you what God's word says. And God's word is authoritative in all, authoritative in all the ways in which it works. Notice Paul first says, for teaching, for doctrine, or instruction. Because that's, that's the first thing. If, 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 and there are ministers that try to do this. They love to, to focus on the word rebuke, reproof, and correction. Sometimes you get the sense, especially in Reformed churches, reproof and correction are central. No instruction is central. Teaching, doctrine is central. You can't, you can't correct people if they haven't been instructed. That's why that comes first. And all of the doctrines that God has breathed out in his word, they all bear the divine authority. How do I know that justification is by faith alone and Christ alone? Because God's authoritative word says it. 
How do I know how I'm to worship God? The right way, because God's word authoritatively reveals it. How am I to know how I am to love my wife and lay down my life for her as Christ did the church? Because God's word reveals that. How do we know what we're supposed to do with our children? Because God's authoritative word teaches us. How do we know that Christ is going to come again? Because the authority of God's word makes that very clear. And so God's word is authoritative and it works out in the ways in which we are instructed, we are reproved, we are corrected, and we are trained. Now, we have seen that Paul touches on inspiration, and then he has moved to authority. And now, and I want you to listen very carefully, now he moves to sufficiency. This is so important. He moves to sufficiency. He says that the man of God may be complete, and the Greek word might be better translated thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to say this this morning. There is only really one thing that I need to fulfill the ministry God has given me, and that is scripture. It is sufficient. The minister of the gospel has been given one thing. I know we also have sacraments. I know we have discipline. I know we have church government. But the scripture, Paul says, is thoroughly complete. It is, it is enough. If I got up here this morning and we had come to worship and we were about to enter into the worship service and we came to the call to worship and instead of reading Psalm 111, I decided to read you my favorite passage out of Aristotle. I hope you would drive me out of this church because you don't need Aristotle. You don't need the many voices. It's not saying you can't learn things from them, but for the church, for those things that make us wise unto salvation, for those tools God has given ministers to labor in the church, the scripture and the scripture alone is sufficient. This was the big principle of the Reformation. You see, the Roman Catholic Church would say, yes, we believe scripture is inspired. We believe it's authoritative. We do not believe it's sufficient. And so they put scripture on par with the magisterium, with tradition, with the pope, with the church, and it was all equal. And in our day, um, it is very common for even professing believers not to understand this and to put sociology or archaeology or any number of other things on par with scripture and so diminish the sufficiency of scripture and say, yes, but you need this and this and this and this. And I am here this morning to say, no, you do not. To make you wise unto salvation, Paul says, the scriptures make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I was in a church once that my parents attended, and the minister was sort of starting to peddle the word. He was telling lots of stories and just making things up and I don't even know. It was a weird season. And uh, it was a PCA church. And my dad, much to my embarrassment at the time and much to my admiration now, had a meeting with the pastor. And, and he took his Bible and he said to that pastor, you have one job and only one job in this church. And that is to preach this book rightly, pervasively, and not to deviate from it. Now, you need to hear that this morning because that's what you should expect from me. And I need to be reminded of that this morning because our confidence, our confidence 
that God is going to do what God has promised to do is built on this. The scriptures make clear that every word that God has spoken, God is going to fulfill. And that means that our confidence in the inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of scripture ought to be the great confidence, even if everything in culture around us crumbles, even if everybody tries to get you to deviate from that, even if you feel like, I'm not sure if this is where I'm at, you need to be grounded in that, because if everything out around you crumbles, God has promised this will never crumble. This is why the reformers preached the way they did to a society that didn't want to hear God's word, hadn't heard God's word, were, were held captive under traditions and, and under the bondage of all kinds of extra-biblical things. That's why we need reformation. And our confidence is that that comes through the ministry of God's word. Well, secondly, I want us to consider the means of propagating scripture. Notice that as we move into chapter 4, Paul now turns to Timothy and he gives him an admin. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now, um, I've already mentioned that Sinclair Ferguson said um, that it's, it's probably the case in most churches that the people wish their pastor had less to say, but there's always more to say. Calvin felt his inadequacy at the end of his life, that he had not done the best job he could do um, because there is so much in Scripture. And so the preaching of God's Word becomes the central vehicle by which the truth of God takes root in the lives of the people of God. That's true for you right now. I can't see into your heart I don't know what's going on in your minds, but I know that the living, active, authoritative, sufficient word of God is doing something in you. I want to read a quote to you. Heiko Obermann, he was a Reformation historian. He said, there's a double operation of the Holy Spirit in opening the Bible through preaching and opening the hearts of the listeners, which constitutes the sermon as a corporate action which links, links speaking and listening. Obermann says this. He says, No preaching of the gospel is possible without the whole congregation being involved, positively or negatively, accepting the word or rejecting it. Isn't that interesting? The sermon is not something that a minister is doing just speaking into the air. It is a corporate event in which the one speaking and proclaiming God's truth and those listening are together uh, representing what it is for the word to be preached, and they are either accepting or rejecting it. And yet Paul uh, gives this admonition to Timothy for a very specific reason. Notice this. Notice verse 3. Look at this with me. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. The time is coming. He's talking about in his lifetime, in Timothy's. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You know, one of the really interesting things about this right here is that the apostle has essentially said to Timothy, there is a day coming when people will not want to hear God's word proclaimed. And he's saying, 
what is the answer? What is the answer? When the people don't want to hear God's word, the answer is the preaching of God's word. Paul is saying, when everyone around us wants to cast off the preaching of God's word, the answer is not to try to entertain people better. It's not to try to build bigger buildings. It's not to try to formulate some method or plan that will get people into the church. The answer is exactly what they don't want. Paul says they are not going to want sound teaching. Preach the word. Isn't that awesome? That is God's remedy when people don't want to hear the word. Um, you know, I was thinking about this a lot this week. We, we honor the reformers the best, not by reaching into the annals of church history to just admire all the great things God did them. We admire them the best when we follow their example of proclaiming God's word in all the ways that they did. Now, you may not want to hear this, but Calvin preached like 10 times a week. Um, the apostles preached so much that, and so long that Eutychus fell out of a window and died. Now, I, my friend Eric Raymond said this week, he said, I don't know which is more impressive, that Eutychus fell out of a window during the sermon and died, or that they were listening to preaching till midnight. Just take that home, put it in your pipe, smoke it. That's, that's, your, that's your big nugget. Um, we don't have too little preaching. We have too, I'm sorry, we don't have too much preaching. We have too little preaching. We don't have enough preaching of God's word. And so Paul is telling Timothy, look, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be fervent about preaching God's word. Be diligent in preaching God's word. Do it even when you don't feel like doing it. Let me say this this morning. There are many Sundays when I walk into a pulpit with trepidation or with weariness, not feeling like preaching and leave grateful that I just preach myself into a happy spiritual condition. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. There are seasons, there are times when, when ministers are going to grow weary and he knew Timothy's disposition and he says to him, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Um, now, I want to say this. No minister of the gospel will ever preach a sermon that he feels was proclaimed well enough. Um, stepping down after preaching is often one of the most discouraging psychological experiences ministers ever have. Um, and yet, there's a confidence that we can have that if God's word is being faithfully proclaimed, that God is accomplishing his purposes. Now, I love this quote. Martin Luther, you've probably read this. He was asked how he brought about the Reformation because he was the one God really used at the beginning. And Luther said this. Listen to this. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the words so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. That's awesome. Luther said, I taught, I preached, I translated scripture, I drank beer with my friends, and the papacy had a bigger blow than any nation could put on it. That's awesome. If you don't think that's awesome, you're missing something. 
That is awesome. And God, the living God, still wants to do that today. You know, I sometimes fear that as we look at all the falsehood that's out there, that the people of God start to lack confidence that God is going to produce and and do what he does through the preaching of the word. That's why we don't have more faithful preachers. You know, I sometimes have to come to the sad realization that there are many, many, many men in Protestant pulpits who are peddling God's word and who desperately need to hear what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy here and to get on board with that. Um, you know, if, if you are going to make it to heaven, it is incumbent that you sit under the sound preaching of God's word. It is absolutely essential. Um, reading God's word is absolutely vital, but it's not the same as sitting under the preaching of God's word. God still speaks when you read your Bible, but there's something special that happens when Christ speaks through the proclamation of his word, the exposition of his word, the application of his word, something happens in the souls of God's people. I remember when I was first converted, the the first evening sermon that I'd ever heard, it was out of Hosea chapter 11, and I had been in such darkness and in the far country for so many years um, that, that as I sat there and I listened to the minister, it was in Greenville, South Carolina, and He read out of Hosea 11 where God says, essentially, I I led you like a father, his child. I taught you to walk. I raised you. I I drew you to myself. I remember knowing that God was speaking into the depths of my soul for the first time I felt that, for the first time in my life. And, And, you know, I don't remember much else about the sermon, but I remember God's word. And I remember the living God was speaking into the depths of my soul. And that means we should be, and I'll give you some very tangible applications, we should be praying for those that preach God's word. We should be encouraging those that preach God's word. We should be praying that God prepares our hearts to receive his word. Those are three very tangible things that every week you as the people of God can be doing. I need you to pray for me. Whoever else is preaching needs you to pray for them. We can be praying for our Sunday school teachers. They need you to be praying for them. We can be praying that they will be encouraged in their labors. We can be praying that God will prepare our hearts to receive his word. You know, I, I am sometimes discouraged by the fact that I, I get the sense from some of the people of God that they would rather be doing anything than sitting under the preaching of the word. This is the thing, Paul says. This is the thing. This is how Reformation broke out across the face of the earth. This is, may God do it, this is how it's going to happen again. Now, you and I both collectively need to be confident in that. Doesn't matter how few people are in the church, doesn't matter how large the church is, we need the confidence that scripture is the God-breathed word that makes us wise for salvation and that the Lord would have us preach it in season, out of season, that it is sufficient to produce what God is committed to producing in the lives of his people. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We do ask you this morning that you would make us a people who love your word more than we do that you would give us confidence that it is breathed out by you, 
that it is authoritative in all its parts, that it is sufficient for the work of gospel ministry, that Christ crucified and risen is held forth in all of the scriptures, and that you have appointed it to be proclaimed to accomplish your purposes in the nation. Our God, we would ask that you would send reformation again. We long to have that in our own souls. We long to see it in our church. We long to see it in Charleston. We long to see it in our country, and we long to see it around the face of the earth. And so, our God, would you do that? Would you stir us up by way of reminder this morning and give us that confidence that you do accomplish your purposes through the written and proclaimed word that you have given us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.